welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. All right, guys, and welcome back to a Brain Tools episode. This is one is a little bit different. There's been a bit of an interlude between uh, weeks for us. This is an Ask Us Anything episode. So we've been working on a new volume around emotions and emotional regulation, which is going to come out next week. So we thought, why not do a little episode in between where we feel the questions we've been getting nonstop about the last 10 episodes. So I'm joined uh, with my man, Kieran. How are you today, Kieran? I'm good. It's hump day. Hey, we're getting through it. It We're nearly there a Friday, and so I'm uh, I'm just excited for a little bit of variety, mate. Like, this is just oh, changing is. stuff. This Mix is it up. completely different. I don't we all know the brain loves variety. Shiny <laughs> okay. ball syndrome. We love it. Novelty. But, yeah, I'm pumped. Ask us anything, eh? Ask us anything. Ask us anything. So we got 10 questions today, and we'll keep this episode short. 10 rapid-fire questions that we've had, um, and we picked them from, you know, a big, big list of questions for each episode. I just want to put that out there. If you've got a question that is right here that we're answering, you should be very, very proud of yourself because it means it's a good question and we've taken time to go through it. But I've been very, very, uh, very, very happy and very uh, grateful for all the questions that have come in. Some absolute rippers, both personal about what we sort of do and how we go about brain tools and applying it in our life, but also some just good, like, what's the research? Like, what's uh, what does uh, this particular uh, thing mean? Which we're very happy to answer. Which always to happy. And there's also been some uh, really weird ones too. So oh. keep the weird questions coming. Yeah, keep us on really, our toes. Some really odd ones, some real personal ones. We're going to get uh, some, I always feel like this is like Dr. Phil. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get deep, yeah. But we will also shed some new uh, new knowledge and some new light on some, some regions of the brain that people are apparently very curious about. So make sure you stick around. Question eight in particular is, uh, is a goodie that I'm very keen about. Sorry, question nine. I take that back. Got it wrong. Get it right. Anyway. <laughs> We're get it right. This. Get it right. Should, should we, uh, let, let's get started. All right. Qu- question number one, uh, which Samuel is coming at you. I'm kidding. No, I'm going to answer this one. It is uh, from the sleep episode, just for if you had, if people don't remember that, but the sleep episode, probably the best audio quality you'll ever hear in your entire life. <laughs> when, we were first, when we were first starting this out. Um, but the question is, what does caffeine do to our sleep quality? Uh, it's a good question, especially given uh, for Sam and I, we are avid coffee drinkers. If I don't drink coffee, I can't really get through my fast. So I'll, yeah. I'll take this one, Sammy. Can I? I'll take this one. Right. Take it away. So caffeine, it's a very, very good question. So basically, as we talked about in the sleep episode, there is something called your circadian rhythm. That is what is responsible for when you're awake and when you're asleep. Uh, and there is a very, very keen neurotransmitter in that, which is melatonin. I'm sure people have taken melatonin pills before when they've been traveling at time zones. Uh, but basically, when melatonin levels are high, uh, it's actually produced by something called SCN, 
suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, but when it's actually produced uh, it, in high levels, that means you are going to bed. If it is in low levels or suppressed, it means that you are awake. So the question does, and comes full circle, what does caffeine do? Caffeine actually uh, suppresses or reduces melatonin levels in the same way that stress does, in the same way uh, that also uh blue light does uh, that we've spoken about before. And so what that means is if you do have caffeine, uh, that you're less likely, A, to go to sleep, as we all know, but B, if you do get to sleep, your sleep, sleep quality is impacted because you'll stay in that sort of wakefulness. Remember the four different stages of sleep. So the long and short, if we can say here, is probably try and stay away from coffee before two is my the long and short or 2 p.m. Uh, the half-life of coffee is eight hours. So if that means half be out of your system by 10 and it should be sweet so i hope that answers the question in some level of detail but yeah caffeine that's what it does it it definitely does yeah and also caffeine has stimulant properties too so you have excitation of various parts of the brain um and that stimulation and neural activity carries over to the night as well um and that analogy i was just thinking about is like you know when you try to go to bed and you're thinking too hard yeah because you've just got too much in your brain well that's what caffeine is doing it's reaching those levels of excitation. Well, what would we do done without caffeine though in our, in our heyday of university? Let's be frank. Well, that's, I mean, what would I do without caffeine right now? We have oh, full stop. coffee machine full in this house. So <laughs> really, really. Let's, <laughs> let's bring it back to the present and right now. Um, <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, that was, a, question. that was a good one. Question question two, which was around episode two on well-being. Go check it out if you haven't, if you want to just listen. Um, we had a lot of feedback that the brain tools were great, especially the the gratitude practice, which being used. And they the listener in question wanted to know, you know, what are some of the brain tools that we actually use and implement in our life to improve our own well-being? Which is very fair enough. Practice what you preach. It's very very kind as all the comment. You both seem like pretty happy dudes. Hey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, not a bad one. Do you want to take it? You go first. You got this. So I actually use all of the, the brain tools that I talk about in the wellbeing episode. Surprise, surprise. I mean, practice what you preach. My favorite ones are meditation. I write in my journal each morning. Um, I practice gratitude, but I also love uh, the box breath. Um, for any time I'm feeling stressed. I just love deep breathing. It's just the easiest route to reduce cortisol in the brain, to trigger your parasympathetic nervous system activation of your sympathetic. Um, and it's super easy. You can do it at your desk. What are you, mate? I love it. Wait, look, do you practice what you preach? I'm the ultimate like dissonance. I'll, I'll say something I never really do it. <laughs> kidding. There's so much congruence in what I say and what I do. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I would say out of – so all the ones that we did mention on the previous episode, I do do. But one that I probably didn't mention is one of the things that uh, whenever I'm feeling a little bit uh, unmotivated or I'm having uh, a lot more negative emotion than positive, I try and learn something new. So reading is a really important outlet to me. So in my room, uh, for those that have been in my room, there's a whiteboard with a bunch of if-then plans. But there's one that says, if you feel unmotivated, pick up a book and read the first page. Uh, and when I learn something new and I, f- I feel like a sense of accomplishment, it's a bit of a small win uh, and I'm more likely than to read five or 10 pages, have that small win and then, yeah, basically kick on and get back into work or do other things. So, yeah, learning something new, uh, whether it's just something small or you're doing a course or you're speaking to people about, I think uh, is something that I personally practice a lot that uh, does positively impact my well-being. That's a, that's a really good one. I actually hadn't thought about that. 
But you just reminded me of another one that I didn't talk about. Talk to me. What do you got? Uh, my other one is like when I'm feeling blue, and, and this sounds so stupid, I, I'll watch stand up comedy. Oh, who's your favorite stand up comedy, by the way? Or stand up comedian? Who goes in there? Ooh. That is a that is a very tough question. Um, Impromptu. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, it, it depends on the night. I'm really loving Andrew Schultz at the moment. Uh, and there's another Scottish comedian that I'm loving to, um, whose name is escaping me for some reason. That's all right. Don't you love that? Um, <laughs> My his name's mate. Kevin Bridges. Kevin Bridges. What about you? Oh, Kevin Bridges. I'm uh, I'm so basic, but I I love a good old Ronnie Cheng. I'm Asian. He's Asian. Okay. Asian yep. humor makes a lot of sense. Bit of a dent. Bit of a density and relation <laughs> and relatability. Uh, and I'd probably say Michael McIntyre. Um, but I like that. Oh, that rates are watching some stand comedy humor. Neuroscience of humor should be humor. So we are. We possibly. Oh, that is a good shout out. We should definitely do that. Um, yes, yeah, strong one. Strong one, just like question question three. Well, I'm going to ask you this one. Episode three, which was on fear, uh, the neuroscience of fear, uh, a very primal response, but uh, it's a good one here, which says, what's the difference between fear and anxiety? Samuel. Yeah, that I mean, it's such a good question. And because they play into each other, right? You, you almost can't have anxiety without fear. So fear is... Uh, fear is the way you feel about a certain situation or some form of external stimulus where you're worried that it presents a threat to you, whether that's physically, psychologically, emotionally, or what have you. For example, you might be deadly afraid of spiders. So that's your fear. Anxiety is your brain taking that fear and then predicting a future scenario from happening, making it feel real, and then triggering a stress response. So it's basically like imagining that fearful situation is happening and then triggering a stress response, which then in turn triggers the amygdala, your insula, your thalamus. Suddenly your brain is flooded with glucocorticoids and with cortisol um, and you you go into survival mode. And that's exactly what happens uh, when you're feeling extreme anxiety is that you're basically having a, a fight, flight or freeze response. Yeah. It's due to imagining fear. Very good. It's also, I find that actually crazy, the fact that um, our imagination us imagining things, creating things, oh, and has the exact same wild. the exact same responses actually happening. Um, it is, which I and you know what's even crazier than that, right? Yeah. Like so, they did some research around like the idea of practice, mm-hmm. and they found people just watching someone either play the piano or shoot basketballs and then imagining it had the same neural activation as if they were practicing themselves, and in wow. turn actually experienced benefits from that practice. Visualization. Visualization. <laughs> Listen to the gurus. That is a imagine what you can be. That's a very very good crazy answer. research. So, well done. There you go. Episode three, pretty good. Question, question three. Well, question, episode four was habits, uh, which I know it was one of your big ones because you love talking habits. I love talking habits. I just think it's really practical. Like what the, the quote that we that was from it was uh, was it excellence? You know, is not just an act, but it's a habit. So it's all about consistency. Yes. Um, but Got a few questions about this actually uh, from the good old Insta, which was uh, how would you apply the four laws of habit change for something like meditation? Given obviously, so how, would, how would you do it? It's a good question. Well, how long do you have? I'm just kidding. I won't take that long. But just to refresh everyone's memory uh, from James Clear's Atomic Habits, the four laws of habit change, you've got to make it obvious, you've got to make it attractive, you've got to make it easy, you've got to make it satisfying. 
So rather than do a whole shebang, I'll, I'll sort of just relate to how I ended up, ended up doing it. I think the obvious part uh, is a, a real clear one, which is I always just have a very clear reminder uh, at work. So I'm actually back in the office. So I have it on uh, my uh, for my other screen that says, remember to meditate. And I also put a bunch of alarms in it to make sure that I do meditate. The other one though, that we talked about in the episode was habit coupling, which is take an existing habit and then actually couple that with the habit you're actually trying to do. And the one mm. I have is actually when I take lunch. So when I take lunch, I'll go out for lunch and I know immediately when I come back, I'll see uh, this office space where I normally do my meditation and I couple that together lunch with meditation. And I always do it after lunch because I just want to make sure I'm a bit more switched on. Um, and the only other thing that I can possibly add if you want to really try and implement meditation is do it together. Like, as we've said, collective mm. change is so much easier than individual change. We've started a bit of a, it's going to sound like I run a really weird company, but we've started a bit of a meditation club. Uh, we do it three times a week and it just makes it a lot easier when people are going to remind you. It just increases the probability of happening uh, given you built redundancy uh, into the actual habit itself. Social accountability, as Naval would said, put it out there. Put it out there. Put your name on it and then see. Put it out there. Oh, by the way. Tell people you're going to do it. Have you read the Naval Manak yet? No, I, have, I I actually bought it. I haven't read it yet. Oh, you good? Wow, well, I feel like a terrible human being. I just sort of downloaded it. But uh, yeah, it is easily top five books. Uh, anyone to download it, it will change your life generally. You, you're a massive Naval fan though. So there's oh, more than a hint of bias in there. Oh, hello, mister. I enjoy him. I enjoy him as much as the next person. <laughs> Um, you know, within reason, within reason. Oh, I don't have it within reason. I'm just fanboy. I think you have a Naval addiction, which is great because our next question is on addiction. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, segue. segue. Yeah, segue. The next question, and this actually came up a couple of times. Um, I was asked a couple of times personally and also through other channels, which was, you know, how do you break a sugar addiction? He says, while Kieran drinks a can of what looks like soft drink. <laughs> it's so bad because I'm a diabetic that's drinking a green, like a green tea with like 17 grams of sugar in it while you asked that question. And I didn't know that was coming. I'm no, sorry, diabetic. Kieran, brown. listen, listen up. Listen up. This, this <laughs> one's for you. <laughs> um, so there's actually, there's, there's some crazy neuroscience around um uh, sugar and addiction and they've done quite a few fMRI studies where they've looked at bra- people's brains who have quote unquote sugar addictions and, and people who classify themselves as unhealthy eaters and they can actually see in the same reward system activation in these people's brains as drug addicts yeah crazy and the, the more crazy part was that because of the way dopamine works and we cover this in this episode on addiction when it comes to sugar these people have this massively heightened dopamine response in anticipation of the sugar so they'll see an ice cream their brain activity will just become a light in anticipation their reward centers light up like a christmas tree everything's flooding but the joy and the experience of eating that ice cream they have a much lower enjoyment than people who don't have a sugar addiction so it's like it's making you want to eat more, even though you enjoy less. Pretty crazy. That's nuts. It's pretty pretty crazy. The, the fact that like goes again with it, which is like that we talked about like behavioral addictions and you know drug induced mm. addictions, and the fact that sugar has the exact same response with it is um yeah, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. It's, it's pretty intense, and they've done quite a bit of research around it as well, um, looking at the the similarities between neural patterns and activations. So in terms of breaking the sugar addiction, there are a couple of ones that we talked about from the habits episode. One is to just make it hard, get it out of sight, out of mind. If you don't have sugar in the house, you won't eat it. Um, Another one, which is probably less clear cut is 
still playing into that reward pattern of when you think you you want something sweet, but substituting it with fructose, with a piece of fruit. So this is one I personally use if you find yourself eating lots of chocolate. Still reward your brain by giving it something sweet, but use natural sugars that have fiber attached so they're processed much more easily um, is, a, is a good way to break that sugar pattern. Or the other way to do it is to just wait, right? If you force yourself to wait five minutes before like that, after that moment of, oh my God, I want a piece of chocolate and you wait five minutes, what you'll find is that dopamine anticipation has subsided. The reward activation system has has subsided and basically your brain goes, ah, I don't really want it anymore. That's okay. (laughs) Go away. So yeah, those are the three thrones. Make it hard. Um, Wait and substitute fruit. Yeah, I agree. And I think those are those are phenomenal because I think you can always break in terms of habits like prevention and reaction and need a mixture of both of those things. I think like the reality is go back to episode one as well. Just get a better night's sleep. Mm. Yep, 100%. Our sleep provides you crave heavier foods, more glucose uh, heavy foods as well, and you're more likely to make yeah. food choices because your decision-making, you know, we, you know, willpower fatigue has been sort of debunked, but we can sort of apply it still. Um, Ego depletion theory. Yeah, not a thing. But yeah, um, you know, I, I totally agree with you. And that, that, the, I think the reminder of a phrase is we close off um, ep five, and we'll, we'll take a little bit of an interlude here and come back with episode six to ten. But, uh, hey, an interlude within an interlude, Inception. Um, but it's God. much easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist in reality. Yeah. Yep. You, and you totally missed the opportunity to say interludeception, and I'm very disappointed about that. <sighs> That's record. <laughs> but what we'll do uh, is we will be back shortly and we'll go through episode 6 to 10 with your questions. And we are back now. We've done episodes one to five with our Ask Us Anything. And we're now going to wrap this up with uh, episodes six to ten. So we start with episode six, which was dating. Actually, the most downloaded episode, which uh, mm. interesting that it was all about Tinder and uh, dating and so on. A good question here, which is how do you stay connected to your partner based on neuroscience when you are physically apart, given COVID-19 has uh, obviously led to that? And this one uh, definitely twing, twinges against my heartstrings somewhat and plucking my heart harp, so to speak, because I w- went through this exact situation with my partner when we were in lockdown and also when I uh, lived in a different city, uh, 1,800 kilometers away from her. So according to the research, like what, what actually creates intimacy or what fosters intimacy in couples is disclosure, self-disclosure. And the, they, they did a study called the 32 questions study and they hypothesized that if you answer these 32 questions that uh create increasing levels of self-disclosure and trust between two people that should form a bond and it's a really really interesting study because two of the researchers decided they'd ask each other those two questions there's 32 questions and then six weeks later they got married wowza wowza yeah so coming back, it's pretty. It's it's hilarious. So there's two researchers in a lab meant to be researching whether or not this works. Ask each other these 32 questions and then fall in love. That's a that's a rom com. You're just stealing that from a rom com. I I have scientific evidence. It's proof. It's, it's, it's talking about love questions. But it basically comes back to the fact that self disclosures um, or like admitting little things about yourself fosters trust. 
And that's what a lot of our relationships are based on. You think about when you were a kid, when you had friends, you tell each other secrets mm-hmm. and that's how you bond. And that's one thing you miss a lot um, when you're separated. So one thing you can do to keep, stay connected and intimate is just like share some secrets from your day or like share some little things that you wouldn't tell anyone else because that fosters that same sense of intimacy. You, you're experiencing some self-disclosure. So like a lot of people like to talk about the mundane things during the day, but if you can find like little embarrassing things, like little moments that you can share with your partner, you'll tend to find it gives them a bit of a sense of intimacy that way. Power of vulnerability, hey? The power of Brené Brown, sponsor this podcast. I love your work. <laughs> Coming back. I think it's a ripper though, mate. Spot on. I love it. I've got nothing to add. That was perfect. But we actually also had a very cheeky a cheeky dating question uh, uh, I, from possibly you, a secret admirer. Every time you do this, it never ends well. I don't like this. Uh, look, I've been told otherwise. Uh, from, from a very secret admirer. And this question's possibly not directed at me being in a loving, stable relationship with my partner. Oh, is, the question is. was, <laughs> I'm just putting you on the spotlight. Aren't you? I don't, you really what do you look for in a romantic partner? This is a big stitch up. You suck. What? Oh, what do I look for in a romantic partner? Wowza. Okay. I'm going to give a very, hopefully, concise answer to this. What do I look for in a romantic partner? Um, well, I'd say there's uh, two components to it, which is one, I think it's, um, there's obviously going to be some sort of attraction there, right? You've got to feel, there's got to be a feeling. I know we spoke about romanticism uh, in the, the relationships episode coming up, but you've got to have a degree of that. I think there's, um, I don't know, a few other appealing things. Like it's just the, the chemistry, the conversation that we have. I'm just not one to reduce it and be like, here is my ticker box of all the things I need in a partner because I think you just sort of got to make a partnership work over time because uh, the day, like the way you feel on day one is probably not the way you feel on day 3600, as we said before. But another one I would put out there is actually ambition. I find that very attractive uh, in a partner. So I would, uh, yeah, level out and say that for whatever that's worth. Do you think that's a reflection of your own characteristics? Maybe, maybe. I, I would say that, but, but that's a rubbish. Off the record. Off the record. Robert Chiodini, though, right? Uh, so people like those that are similar to them. It's a liking bias. So I would totally mm. resonate with that and a lot of the problems that have come with that. So I'm with you. That's my answer. I'm on the spot. That was probably a terrible one. Nice. We're going to move on. It was great. <laughs> I like it. Next question. Keep it moving. Uh, episode seven, uh, which was on relationships. Um, and the question is, most of the tools you spoke about are related to romantic relationships. How would you apply some of your brain tools to platonic relationships, i.e. your friends? Great use of platonic. Sam, what are you feeling here? So I'm a bit conflicted because I, I feel like I feel like the brain tools we talk about and just any relationships, brain tools, just they they work like relationships that are intimate and platonic. It's they operate under a really similar basis of trust, of disclosure, yeah. of shared experience. What do I you think? Agree. I think it's first principles, though, right? Which is like what works in a platonic yeah. relationship should work in a romantic relationship in reality. But I'd say um, the one that probably really pops out to me. I know it's going to sound incredibly boring, but I think it's just consistency, right? It's the consistency of outreach, which is. You know, penciling into your schedule, uh, whether it's family, whether it's friends, to do that every single week, maybe every two weeks. And so it becomes something that is scheduled because, like, what gets scheduled gets done. And I think that, in a stricter sense of reaching out and doing that on a consistent basis, mm. shows that you're reliable, it shows that you're predictable, it shows that you'll show up. 
Um, and I think we can talk about everything, which is like how you should communicate, how you should do stuff. You've got to show up in the first place. And there's a lot of the times I'll yeah. put my hand up and say with my friendships because I possibly take them sometimes for granted because I like, you know, we thought we are talking about this. Like when you, when you do have like a really good friendship, you sometimes can be like, oh, we'll just slip back into the way it was when I pick up the phone and it is. But I would say that, yeah, the consistency is the most important part, which I've had to have a think about, which uh, has been good for my life, I dare say. That's a really good point. I actually hadn't thought about that, but you bring up, especially I'm, I'm feeling that a little bit in Melbourne lockdown, uh, the motivation to reach out to people you can't see hasn't been as high. Yeah. And as a result, I don't think I've done it as well. And you can tell it definitely impacts your, your friendships. You just don't feel as close. Yeah, you do. And like it just falls away, but it's just, yeah, as you said, scheduling it. But hey. It, it does. And it ties into the next question too. Episode eight. Attention. Episode eight. Um, Attention. Oh, I like this one. Okay. More, yeah. uh, what are your most used social media apps and why? Sam, I'm going to let – no, you're going first on this one. <laughs> I've got to think about this. Yeah. Uh, it's LinkedIn. It's yeah. LinkedIn oh, by shock. such a long margin. <laughs> shock. I'm all yes. over it. Uh, and the reason that. why – the reason why is because there's lots of really great educational content on there. Yeah. There's lots of people who put stuff out around um, marketing and sales, which I find particularly fascinating, the quality and caliber of which you just don't get anywhere else on a social media platform. And because it relates to my job, I can kind of justify spending some time on there, learning some things and, and finding some new stuff out. What about you? I think you're so good at that though. I've like you, the, the mm. content you put out though, right? Like I know we always say this a lot, but I'm giving, you, I'm giving you a compliment here. We always talk about providing value, but you do. Like you do your research, you put something out there with the intent of, hey, how can I make some people better? And as you said, I think LinkedIn is the one thing that you can leverage compound interest on. Like you put a bunch of stuff out there with mm. about people that have done such a good job on it um, by by actually finding their niche, providing some expertise and, and doing it. So I'm I'm with you on that. I've got to be frank. I it's Insta. It's no, it's none. Like I I'm really off it now. Like I would say if it is, it'd be Insta, and it's only like ten minutes a day. But I just I don't know. Maybe and I hope I'm not being too philosophical here. But I just I just don't see the return on. On social media, like I just, I agree. I find myself, I like my the way in which I weigh it up, and this is gonna sound super weird, but I'm like, I could spend an hour on social media, but I don't spend an hour writing or, or reading, um, which sounds like it's yourself, which mm. I don't get much. I, I remember when I was like in the early 20s, maybe late teens, like all I would do was just look at hot people and look at stuff on these things and then just get jealous and be like, oh, their life looks sick. And I know that's a lot of what we've spoken about or what's been going in the news, but. None really. I would say WhatsApp. Let's put it that way. WhatsApp. WhatsApp will be mm. if that's a social media one, just to communicate with people. But outside of that, not really on Facebook. Twitter more. Yeah. Just because there's cool people to follow. But that's the thing. I, I basically don't use them for the social aspect. I use them for the content. So it's like I'm like doing my reading, but on a social platform. Oh, and yeah, Twitter's just so good at that. But good question. Very, very, very good question. Um, good question. Down the tail next two episodes, eh? Last two episodes. Uh, so episode nine was on aging, which uh, had lots of questions from uh, people of all ages. But one one that was asked kind of grabbed both of our attention. And that was, you know, like, what can you do to help someone who's older but doesn't like socializing? A grumpy grandpa. What do you do? It's, it is a really good question. And I, uh, the only thing I can think of here, I, I'm actually in Australia here and say I don't know, 
based on the research. But what I would put out is if someone doesn't like socializing, I think it's a frequency thing. I think it's a, mm. like, say it's me and my grandfather, whatever it might be, actually just continually doing it is like, I almost feel like activation energy, good old chemistry. It's like you you need to keep going, building up, building up, and see it's the point where you do break through, there is a reaction, and then you're, you're allowed to have a conversation with that person. Um, I think you break their resolve that way. And then I would say make it make it about their life. Like one thing that I would say is my my parents are loving the bits, but like they've been obviously in lockdown. I think a really interesting thing you can do is find out about your parents' life, which I've done recently only. Ask them questions about stuff, make it about them. Yeah, it's good. I found out so much stuff about my parents recently that I hadn't pre like hadn't even thought of before. Like dad was a massive hippie back in the day, like this Asian dude, like Yoda with like these flared jeans <laughs> and um, <laughs> just an absolute weirdo, but just found out that stuff. Mr. Goy, yeah. stop it. Yeah, I know, Mr. Goy. But yeah, I'd say those two things, which is not based on the research, right? This is just my personal opinion. Yeah. Too. What about you, mate? What are you thinking? Well, there is actually some research because I remember getting asked this question and thinking, huh, it's a, a very valid point. Very. What do you do? It's a very good question because, you know, some of the, the most of the blue zones have uh, socializing ingrained into their culture and it's often referenced so many times in the research. So one of the other things you can do that doesn't require socializing is nostalgia. Mm. Nostalgia. So there's all this research out there that the process of nostalgia of reimagining events specifically from the period of time when you were uh, 19 to 35 actually reactivates the brain in a way that revitalizes it. And so there's been all these links between like people just spending time remembering their past and keeping their brain healthy as a result by, you know, refiring those neural pathways. That is fake. Wow. Did we, right? did we organize that for me to say that? If you no. no, we didn't do it. What? No, we did not. We did not organize that at all, which is crazy. We're so insane. Um, oh. Yeah, I know. So shout out to uh, John Medina. He's written some great books. He wrote a book called uh, Brain Rules for Aging. And this was one of his big ones was nostalgia is really, really powerful for, you know, keeping the brain healthy as you age. Who knew? That is so interesting. Wow. A lot of repercussions there. I'm. You've got me there. You want brownie points. You can cash them in however you Yeah. <laughs> nostalgia. Go, go open up a picture book. It's good for your brain. I love it. Last one, hey, as we round out this, uh, you know, ask us anything episode. Episode 10, mm. memory. Recent episode. Uh, you got you got the question in front of you? Yeah, you do. I've got it. Uh, this one I got asked, but I'm going to pose it to you because uh-huh. I, I, I got asked it first and it was, how can I remember more for my job and for my role? Ooh, that's a really, really good question. Um, so I would, I'm going to break this into two parts, which is, I would say the stuff that you find out on the go, which is just learning about your role and the stuff that you Mm. do that is by like first principles within like your industry. So I think first and foremost, from an industry perspective, um, I would be talking and referring back to what we talked about, which is syntopical reading, which is getting Mm. like that industry, whether it's education for us, we've obviously done neuroscience, doing a massive deep dive, selecting top, top 10, top 12 books in that area and actively comparing each and every one of them. So you can learn the foundational principles because once you've got that foundational principles and that framework, what becomes really interesting from a learning on the go, when you're learning in your first six to 12 months, I would always keep a question list. Um, which is mm. that I would have to ask, like, say, my employee or my um, employers or my colleagues, keep a list and then actually peg them to one of the principles that it means. And you almost are now like 
you know, creating a nice web of associations with the stuff that you know are core principles in your industry, but also things you're learning on the go and go and you create that connection. And you end up having like a frequently asked questions list um, that you've almost filed according to the models in your brain, if that makes sense. Kind of. Yeah, I get what you're going to do, like creating up this this question list to set yourself up to answer them and look for that information subconsciously as you go about your duties, but also by creating like a, a base understanding of the subject matter. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. What about you? Um, yeah, so I had two answers to this question. The first was if you've got information that you have to remember from a rote perspective off by heart, like say you're in uh, you know, a legal profession or you're in accounting or finance, you just have to remember rules. Um, use something like Anki. Yeah. Super easy. Create some flashcards and then just, you know, when you go to the bathroom at work, open up your phone, whisk through some flashcards and you'll, you'll start to remember the stuff really quickly. But my other one, and this is what I actually personally used, was to flip, flip the amount of uh, input you do and have more generation. So what I mean by that is like rather than read, 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 maybe take some minor notes, spend, you know, 60, 70% of your time creating notes, writing documents, rewriting out your knowledge because that process of creation further ingrains in your brain, the associations you have with it and articulating what you understand shows you where those knowledge gaps are. And it's just so much more effective than sitting there and trying to read and read and read and remember all this stuff. And also you can create really useful stuff for your workplace. Maybe you create, you know, uh, Kieran's guide to marketing for Elevate and suddenly that's a resource you can share that's you've taught yourself how to do something but it's also now shareable I really like that because that, that falls so nicely into the idea of teaching as you said yep. which is like you know if you're at work actually taking an active role to support peers or like interns or something like that and taking that teaching role it just reinforces your learning if you can actually yeah make someone understand it I think that Albert Einstein quote, 100% can't explain it to a six year old you don't understand it well enough um, and so yes. understanding is the, the precursor for memory in reality. I love it. Yeah, well, that's it. And like so often we uh, we substitute uh, recognition for recall. Yeah. We think because we recognize information that we're going to be able to remember it when we don't. Like just seeing a word on a page and going, oh, yeah, I know what that means because you see the rest of the word is not the same as remembering it in the moment when you don't have that cue. Association. <laughs> <laughs> Context-dependent memory, state-dependent memory. Maybe we should talk about that in a future episode. We've got There's so much going on. This has been a cool episode. Oh, I liked it. It's fun, yeah. Well, I mean, wrapping up, that's 10 episodes so far. But we did have – we have one more question. Mm. The question being, um, loving the podcast so far, super practical and engaging. Oh, shucks. That's very kind of you. Um, what's on the cards for brain tools in the future? Whew, that's, a, that's a biggie. Sam, you can go first. <laughs> Doing this um, whole episode, Sam, you go first. I'll just follow it after once I've had time to think. <laughs> just set me up. Just set me up for fail. That's a good question. Uh, we we want to do more volumes where we kind of lump episodes together into like a, a theme or a category because that way we can go deeper on a certain theme. For example, the next uh, theme and volume we're going to do is around emotions and emotional regulation rather than just having one-off episodes here or there. It'll give us a bit of a deep dive, but long-term on the future, I mean, we, we just want to keep, you know, putting out more content and then also starting to put out more content uh, in the video space too. Mm. start to just keep sharing and, and, and push forward with that mission of democratizing brain science for the rest of the world, sharing it in ways people can understand. What a tagline, democratizing brain science. I'm pretty sure you came up with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Tooting your own horn very hard. <laughs> Sorry, I really, really enjoyed that one. What's, um, <laughs> I was actually. Uh, what, <laughs> what's your answer? What, what do you see on the cards? Yeah, I think totally that. I think just based on the feedback that we've been getting um, has been amazing in terms of you know people feeling. A, being kinder to themselves as a result of knowing that most of the stuff is coming from their brain and, un- and knowing mm. that we don't really still know a ton about our brain is also a really exciting oh, frontier. Um, but I, I think what uh, I see on the cards and we've spoken about this at length, but is yeah, starting to put some really practical like implementation guides together, um, putting together books, um, definitely doing a deep dive into biases and heuristics, which uh, stay tuned mm. to the different episode types we're doing. But as yeah. I said, it's just, giving it's helping people with their self-awareness which is linked to obviously self-reflection like people just being posed a question and being like hey i've never really considered that uh, or using obviously the the brain tools the more that uh, we continue to do that in different in breadth and depth um yeah we're, we're heading in the right direction so stay tuned for these volumes which is very very exciting this next one on emotional uh, emotions and emotional regulation super exciting and it also i times up well with the release of our newsletter which we're, which we're going to do to summarize the content from the episodes and put out some stuff too so there you go well done that was fun we that was fun that was a good, good episode yeah i'll see you at episode 20 maybe if you're lucky <laughs> Make it fit, baby. Loving it. good job thanks mate thanks uh for for listening and we'll see you uh next week for emotions emotional regulation bye for now bye thanks so much for listening to this episode of brain tools we've got three quick things to hit you with before you go one if you want to hear other brain tools you can find our other episodes at the link below and on all podcasting platforms number two if you like this episode then give us a review on itunes or spotify only if it's above four stars and number three you can go ahead and join the braintools.mn.co community where we'll post a complete brain guide based on this episode, plus a ton of other resources. Best of all, it is completely free. Cannot wait to see you next episode. And until then, bye for now. See you next episode.